And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, March 27th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, what one longtime government watchdog group recommends for the 118th Congress. Plus, Veterans Affairs campuses are designed to be open, maybe too open. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Russia-Ukraine conflict has put a spotlight on the importance of open source data and intelligence. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency's Terrorline project has been one of the leading open source efforts in the typically secretive intelligence community. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the program manager for Terrorline, Chris Rasmussen. Terrorline is an analytic outreach effort, and it's a public project. So we partner with nonprofits, universities, think tanks, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, to create public-facing open content of mutual benefit. That's beneficial to NGA and internal to the government and other intelligence agencies and other federal agencies, but also a benefit to the partner. They get their name and publication credit in that space. So how we pick the topics is pretty interesting. We prefer that the partner offer the first volley when we're trying to agree on a question. Why? Is because they're putting the, the most of the original labor, the research labor, is coming from the partner. So NJ does will pay for commercial imagery, and we'll get into that, and we kind of help and provide kind of geoint consulting services. But think about Terrelai more as like an NJ-sponsored journal, right? So the labor is coming to the journal. And when that's the case, you want people to have passion about it. That's what drives the research. NJ can assign questions, but we find it to be more valuable when the first volley or proposal is made by the partner, and then NGA will tweak it a little bit to get niche for NGA or partial value for NGA. And why I say partial is because these are volunteers. These are not employees. So you can, you know, you're not going to get the exact report. So if you get new insight that's 60%, that's a great metric. That's why I use the word partial because they are volunteers. So generally they'll come to us with about a one-sentence idea that they have. NJ may tweak three words to get value. And so what we're trying to do is balance is it unique internally to the IC and to NJ, and it is also unique in the trade space online, right, of how many people have published about this. We don't want to chase the soccer ball on an external thing when a million websites have, have covered the topic. We want an original research value externally, and the authors want their name on that. That's something that's new and original. Got it. Let's talk a little bit about what the project has been focused on over the past year, particularly, I mean, everyone in the world has been paying attention to the conflict in Ukraine. I know there's several reports that you have on your website about Ukraine, but you know, you mentioned how you have to be a little bit selective. How have you tried to carve out the niche there? What have you been focused on in particular in Ukraine? Yeah, so that's a very fast-moving space and a fairly saturated space in, in with many, many topics. And, and what we do is we try to look for that original value. Now, there could be reporting already kind of out there on the topic, but you can kind of do a subset of it. We just want something new, right? We, again, we just don't want to just pile on the same thing. We want to be unique in, in, in every way possible and, and help our partners be unique in every way possible. So with Ukraine, it's just that topic. It moves really fast. 
So what we ask our partners to do, and we do this as well, is just keep an eye on the trade space. What is being written on? What conferences are doing the talking? What you know, Twitter accounts to follow? You just have to know that space of what's being published on and to help down-select that unique topic. Uh, and we have had topics that have changed uh, in Ukraine, and we had one that was scooped. So there was uh, – uh, the content was being created, and a great piece came out, and they got – most of the story. They had to go back to the drawing board and make original content again. So again, we're, we're just not going to double down on things that are already out there. So that was an interesting case of uh, a partner getting scooped and having to start not fully over, but the, the goal is original content and they had to kind of do it again. As a reporter, I know that feeling all, <laughs> all too well. It is a terrible feeling. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was an interesting case. Anything else on just on Russia, Ukraine that you think is particularly important? Yeah, with the the content, again, people want to help, right? So we get a lot of Ukraine proposals that are coming in, as as you can imagine. So it's it's not ripped from the headlines, but it matters. People want to contribute. A lot of proposals do come in on Ukraine that are Ukraine-based. But again, we just filter them through that internal value and then external value, and we try to draw down the risk of being duplicative to always be original. So you'll see on Terrorline, uh, there's Ukraine economic reporting. There is damage to cultural heritage sites in, in Ukraine. Uh, there was an environmental piece done on the impacts to destruction of coal mines kind of leaking out into the watershed. Those are the types of things that are out there on, on Terrorline now so that your, your listeners can just hit the, the Ukraine category and then all of the, the Ukraine reporting will be there. And we have a couple in the bullpen now. So there's about four to five that are Ukraine-focused that are in draft now that will be out in the next you know 90 days. Got it. And just really quickly, what's kind of the structure of Terraline? What's uh, you know your, your organizational kind of construct? Do you have like a lot of editors, a lot of researchers on staff, on contract? How, how, how does it work in practice? Yeah, so we, we, it depends on the topic. So I try to form the best, basically, I call them helpers, the best helper board possible. And it's a team effort. It's not just one. So if it's a Ukraine-based topic, if it's a Ukraine climate topic, we have people that specialize that in the building. And, and Terraline has a pretty big network internally, right, that, that people that want to help or have been on the teams before. So we want to have subject matter experts, and that's really important. But what's also really important is the educated outsider editor or the, the viewer. So it's a team effort. So you have a generalist and kind of you know an, an educated outsider I'll try to identify one to two subject matter experts, and then myself is kind of like editor-in-chief. I'll provide the overall view of it. So it's a, it's a team sport. So it depends on the topic. There's a large network of helpers at NGA, even at other agencies, that want to help with the content. And de- depending on that, you know, the one-sentence topical agreement, I'll go find that editorial team, not editorial control in, in the way that I describe, but I'll just use it for a lack of a better term, that team, I'll go find them. And they're, they're the helpers of the article that you know communicate. Uh, generally, uh, we ask them to invite us if they have a Slack channel, like a school has a Slack channel or a Teams channel, invite us to your chat channel. That's where a lot of the conversation will go on for months and months and months, in addition to the version control that goes on in Terraline behind the scenes. So we try to identify a team. That seems like such a fascinating development. I guess you're having, you know, these IC analysts who typically work in the dark and now contributing to a public-facing project in concert with these academic and outside teams. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the jump, particularly with GeoIn, it because this discipline has been so commercialized, particularly with overhead imagery, and, and it, there's more to things than overhead imagery. There's ground photography. There's you know reporting on the ground, social media, uh, you know analytics that can come to help. But because of the commercialization of the GeoIn business, a lot of our folks are pretty comfortable in that space. A lot of our folks know how to context switch. So it's not this, you know, coming out of the cave, coming out of the secure facility type of thing. And the people that volunteer and like to help with Terraline, they're pretty progressive. You know, they're volunteering to do this. They, they enjoy working with students, with the NGO or think tank authors. So they're, they're, they're a pretty good progressive group that, that raise their hand to help. Chris Rasmussen, director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency's Terraline Project. Speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, Veterans Affairs campuses are designed to be open. Well, maybe too open. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The Veterans Affairs Department's big medical campuses are full of physical security gaps. The VA's Office of Inspector General has found unlocked exterior doors, broken surveillance cameras, and a shortage of VA police officers top the list. For details, we turn to Deputy Assistant Inspector General Lee Ann Seawright. Ms. Seawright, good to have you back. It's great to talk to you again, Tom. And what prompted a look at physical security of VA facilities? And these are often very large campuses, aren't they? Right. So given the growing concerns about facility security, we initiated this review to provide VA leaders with a snapshot of on-the-ground security conditions at their medical facilities. You know, there's over 171 medical campuses across the United States, and each of those are open campuses, people coming and going and streets running right in front of them, some in the middle of major metropolitan areas. So we wanted to take a look at those security postures at each of those facilities. And the incidence of breaches or violent types of activities is relatively small, isn't it, though? It is. VA has actually implemented a new reporting system in the last year, two years. And so we think that that is some of that. The level of reporting maybe isn't as great. And we've seen the growth of it over the last few years that they've opened up this new system. So we think if we peeked into that, like next year, we'd probably see a lot more, a higher level of that serious incident reporting going on. Sure. And it's against a backdrop of serious incidents seeming to happen more and more in greater society. Exactly. Reflects very much to that. And you had an interesting methodology. This wasn't a report review or simply a review of data. You went there. Tell us about how you went about this uh, look-see. This was a very non-traditional effort for my teams. We actually, you know, spend a few months preparing and planning for audits when we normally do them. We give VA a notification. We, you know, have multiple meetings so that they know it's coming. But in this case, we didn't do any of that. We actually notified VA leadership of our review the day we showed up on site. So to get that snapshot of time and to really understand what a facility looked like, we really thought it was important for them to not be aware of us coming on site. And so We set these plans into motion. We took all of our teams and pretty much shut down operations for a lot of our audits to be able to put 37 teams out to look at 70 facilities. And our teams were a mix of investigators and auditors. So we had criminal investigators that have experience in looking at these sorts of issues. 
to allow us to walk around these campuses to focus on those main facilities where the primary care is occurring and to really open doors. We literally walked the entire facility and opened every door that we could, whether it said it was a public access or non-public access, we tried to open them. 37 teams, how many people were on each team? So there was 150 team members that went across wow. to all these. So we usually had about a two to three people team. And did you do it all within a short time period? We did. We had 33 sites in one day, and we did 70 sites within the first week. Because you didn't want one site calling the other and saying, hey, lock up all the doors and, you know, they're coming. Exactly. Interestingly enough, you know, our results actually changed a little bit from the first day to the third day. We noticed, you know, we saw the transfer of that information going across the facilities and giving them a little bit of a heads up to prepare. So they were ready for us when we showed up on day three. All right. Wow. Amazing. And just generally, I want to ask about several aspects, but just the doors, because these buildings often have maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 different exterior doors, you know, for putting out trash and in the back, which you would expect to be locked and you found some unlocked? Correct. You know, to the doors, when we were planning this, we thought the same thing, like 30 to 40 doors we were sort of estimating for a facility. But really what we found is that some of these facilities have, you know, over 100 doors in one facility on ground level. And we were actually surprised at the number of doors that we were able to open. Some of them clearly had signs that, you know, these were to remain locked and that they were emergency exits only or entrances only. And we determined that a lot of them weren't locked. You know, we tried to open or enter almost 3,000 doors within these 70 sites. And we found that for those non-public doors, so those that were supposed to be locked, we found almost 17% of them were unlocked. Wow. Unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's hard to, it is hard to believe. We're speaking with Lee Ann Seawright, Deputy Assistant Inspector General at Veterans Affairs. And what about surveillance cameras? Do the doors have watches, eyeballs on them in some manner? So of the 374 public doors, we found that 23% of those did not actually have cameras on them. And further with those public doors, VA has a requirement that they have security presence. So whether it's a security guard or a VA police officer or just someone attending that door that, you know, a, a welcoming person at that point. We found that that wasn't the case. We found that 87% of those public entrances really had no presence at them. And then you add to that the lack of cameras. And then cameras overall, we found that 19% of the cameras at these 70 facilities were not in working order. And over 24 facilities had about 20% or more of their cameras that were not working. Would a fair metric for the doors be that there's really only two doors the public can come in through? One, I'm thinking of hospitals, there's a main door and then there's an emergency entrance and everything else you would expect to be locked. Is that the model that you had in mind? Yes, exactly. I mean, there might be more than one main door beyond the emergency entrance, but yes, there should only be a few ways for the public to enter into a facility. And for the non-public doors, I mean, there are people that could hammer them or pick the locks or something. So there you would still want surveillance, even if it's locked. Exactly. You would at least want some sort of camera presence or even where they have, you know, a key card or like the employees can enter that those shouldn't be propped open. And we found a lot of doors that were propped open that we could just walk in. And, and unfortunately, in one case, the team was able to enter one of those non-public doors 
and continue through the hallway and ended up in the ICU. And that is definitely not an area that we would want public to be entering. Yeah, so somebody propped open the door, went around the corner to stubble out that unfiltered camel and figured they would go back in without a lot of walking. And discuss the issue of the staffing of VA police officers. So staffing has been an enduring problem for VA for the police department. So we've been looking at this issue since about 2018. And even the facilities themselves have reported staffing of police officers to be one of their top 10 most troubled, challenged areas to staff, you know, since 2018. What we found, though, for those 70 facilities that we went to, that they have an average vacancy rate of 33%, which is very significant. You know, you can't expect for a facility to have a good security posture if they don't have the appropriate level of staffing to really do the work they need to do. You know, all of these hardening efforts, the security, monitoring the cameras, doing the walk-arounds, having presence at those doors, that requires people. And without those people, you can't meet those missions. And if you look at the lack of staffing, the broken cameras, et cetera, the rest of it, it sounds like that VA has been really lucky so far. They have. They really have. I mean, one of the, I guess, benefits with cameras is that, you know, you don't really know that it's working or not working. So it's a bit of a deterrent to a certain extent, but they have definitely been lucky. And then what are your recommendations? I guess we can guess they're to fix those areas. But what was the reaction of the center directors when you told them, hey, I walked right into the ICU from the back door? I think there was a lot of surprise, frankly, on that, that, you know, you, you assume that if your doors are locked, that they, they are remaining locked, and, and that's not the case. So back to the staffing issue, as we've talked about, this has been an enduring issue. And so, you know, normally we would make a recommendation to the Undersecretary of Health, you know, when we're talking about VHA facilities. But we decided to elevate some of these recommendations all the way to the VA secretary because we think it's so critically important that eyes be on these issues, specifically to the staffing, you know, ensuring that they're monitoring the status of these vacancies and the movement on these vacancies and that they're giving VA and VHA the authorities necessary to, you know, to hire these police officers. You know, we also made recommendations to the Undersecretary of Health to ensure that they have the staffing needs, that they're, you know, funded appropriately to support that and that they're authorizing these positions. You know, it's still a facility decision on hiring, right? They're the ones who dedicate those resources to those facilities to do the jobs. So we want the importance of supporting those hirings to be there. And then the inspection program, really, to make sure that they're doing the job they should be doing and to remedy these weaknesses and to fix these areas. And then third is really establishing those requirements for the security cameras and footage. You know, while we were doing this review, VA was also doing their own review of security cameras. And it's been a glaring issue in terms of there's no consistency in how they're handling cameras, how they're handling footage, what types of tools and systems that they're using and how well they do or don't work. I mean, we went from seeing like the old black and white monitor to seeing very sophisticated systems that, you know, you could track a license plate, you could, you know, do face identity, those sorts of tools. So there's a lot of disparity between the facilities. So some work to do, but ultimately the responsibility for a given facility security is that director, correct? It is the director and the chief of police for that facility, yes. 
All right. So they're on notice now. Leanne Seawright is Deputy Assistant Inspector General at Veterans Affairs. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, at least the congressional budget hearings are following regular order. But first, what one longtime government watchdog group recommends for the 118th Congress? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Barely two months old, the 118th Congress is getting advice from all over. For decades, the Project on Government Oversight has issued a list of 13 steps Congress could take to restore trust in government, improve program performance, and keep things honest. Here with this year's highlights, POGO's Governmental Affairs Manager, Dylan hetler Godet. Dylan, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much for having me back. And in some ways, the advice kind of never changes, you know, have better oversight over spending, better accountability and transparency into spending. Tell us what you think is the top of the list, though, this year that what the 118th Congress should do. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So I think you're spot on there. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. So we we do put out this report at the start of every new Congress. We call it the Baker's Dozen because there are 13 broad categories of recommendations. And you hit on some of the key high level points there. We do think that there is always the need, kind of an evergreen need to keep better track of spending and where it's going, who it's impacting. Is there equity in that spending? You know, is there accountability in that spending and so on? So we've got plenty of recommendations around that kind of thing. We've got plenty of recommendations around how to improve ethics standards across all three branches of government. You know, specifically, we do a lot of work on Pentagon and military oversight in those areas. Uh, one one key area that I've been re- really focused on personally, and I um, was privileged enough to contribute to that part of this report, is around trying to deter and deal with foreign influence in U.S. and domestic policymaking. That is also sort of an evergreen issue, but we've been seeing a sort of a ramp up in that problem in recent years with you know unregistered foreign agents lobbying and things of that nature so we are we are doing some degree of work around that and we sure. think that the 118th congress will be a good good opportunity to make some progress there and by the way how does that money come in i mean it's not necessarily campaign money is it it no, not be. always, although we do see that as an issue from time to time. You know, technically it is illegal for a person who is of foreign descent who's located internationally to contribute directly into domestic elections. So there are rules around that. We don't always see those rules being enforced or, you know, adhered to per se, but there are rules around there. So the way that money does tend to come through intermediaries, so foreign entities, be they foreign companies or foreign governments, will hire people here in Washington, here in the U.S., to do its own kind of advocacy and lobbying on their behalf. And they're supposed there's supposed to be a sort of a regulatory and transparency framework around that kind of lobbying. Although we see from time to time, you know, we see high-profile examples of people, you know, high-profile people. In fact, doing things like advocating and lobbying on behalf of foreign interests who are not registered as they should be. So we do have these we have these rules and systems in place, but we see quite regularly that those rules and systems are not adequate and they're not doing the job. Right. That's kind of how some of that Soros money and similar types of funds come in. Really, you can pick your party. Both parties decry dark money unless it's their own dark money. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing in particular, and we just put out, you know, an explosive investigation on this late last year, and we have some recommendations on how to address it 
in the Baker's Dozen is the matter of former high-ranking you know, officials and generals and people like that coming out of the military and then immediately going to work for someone overseas, be it directly for a foreign government or, or be it or some kind of an entity or a corporation or a company that is based overseas, oftentimes controlled by a foreign government as well. So we're seeing that happen, you know, and we've seen some, you know, we've seen that happen with some household names in recent years, including former General and Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, former National Security Advisor James Jones. And so we see this happening and it calls into question the integrity of policymaking and influence peddling here in domestic politics when we see people using their previous experience and their connections and their cachet as high-ranking sure. U.S. officials. They use that and they they get paid rather handsomely to do it on behalf of foreign interests. So we view that as a pretty big problem, too. And this is a long list, and they all could be talked about for an hour. Briefly, one of the Baker's Dozen is ushering in a new generation of accountable defense spending. And there's a lot of facets to that diamond. But what's your basic feeling there? So there's that old adage that there are no things quite so certain as dying and taxes, right? We think you should add a third bit to that, and that is ever-increasing defense budgets. And so we think that there are many opportunities to take a look at defense spending and to make it a little bit smarter, a little bit more efficient, and a little bit more common sense. We don't tend to agree with the view that you just need to spend more on defense no matter what. Uh, There are all kinds of systems out there that are not working that we're spending a lot of money on. The F-35 comes to mind immediately, for example. But there are other ways to clean up the procurement and acquisition process as well. We call it clean contracting. So trying to make sure that when the Pentagon and the government more broadly is trying to negotiate deals around contracts and things of that nature, that they're able to do it in a smarter way that's going to help preserve taxpayer dollars and use them in a responsible way. You know, there are a lot of specific areas in which that is not happening. And so we've got we've got plenty of recommendations on how to address that, including, you know, trying to require more information and more data transparency from contractors once they've received an award mm-hmm. from the federal government, because currently they are not always required to provide that kind of information, which is, you know, huge black box there. We also, again, I referred to it earlier, but part of the issue around, you know, defense spending is we're not always clear where it's sending up and who's making the decisions about where it's sending up. So that goes back to the old problem of trying to have more oversight and transparency and reporting mechanisms and collection of data around what's happening with spending once it leaves the door from Congress. We're speaking with Dylan hetler Gaudet. He's government affairs manager at the Project on Government Oversight. And another area I wanted to ask you briefly about is promoting humane treatment by and accountability for government officials. And by that, I guess you mean the federal workforce career-wise, correct? Yeah, that is certainly a part of it. Uh, One thing we're very concerned with is the politicization of the civil service, and specifically we saw in the previous administration, there was this proposal advance called Schedule F, which was going to make it a lot easier to get rid of, you know, career civil servants. And we view this as a potential effort to bring back the patronage and cronyism system to government, which will really undermine the actual efficacy and the quality of the federal government. And so we think that the civil service needs to be protected in some 
some you know pretty important ways but we also think that when it comes to the way that you know the american people are treated by certain aspects of the federal government be it dhs be it ice be it cbp be it fbi you know we do think there needs to be a lot a lot more oversight a lot more accountability into those processes particularly when you see the violations of constitutional rights and civil liberties happening and they go unpunished and there's also the issue of Congress itself, and one of your recommendations is empowering Congress to better serve its constituencies. There has been uh, disbanded at the end of the 117th session the, uh, the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. A lot of those recommendations are being implemented and being debated. So what was your basic message on empowering Congress to better serve its constituencies? Yes, I'm really glad you pointed out the Modernization Committee. We were super happy with what that committee did and how they operated. They were very collegial, very bipartisan. They actually served as kind of a model for how we wish the rest of Congress would function. Unfortunately, that's just not going to happen anytime soon. But we did very much applaud the introduction and the implementation and the adoption of a lot of the Modernization Committee's recommendations. And that work is ongoing to continue to implement those proposals. And one bit of good news is even though the committee itself was disbanded, what did happen is that a subcommittee on the House Administration Committee was created to basically continue that work of the Modernization Committee. So we look forward to working with that subcommittee and with the broader House Administration Committee to try and you know continue to move ahead on the critical effort to basically make Congress the institution that it's supposed to be in our system. It is actually, in our view, supposed to be the most powerful you know, of the branches because it is the branch that is closest to the people. It is the branch that that is the most accountable and responsive to the people. And so we think that Congress needs to stop cutting its nose off despite its face, and it needs to, to resource itself. It needs to enhance its own capacities by ensuring that it has the staff it needs you know, to do the job, that it has the technological capacities it needs to do the job, that it has the rules and the protocols in place to make sure that the job being done is being done correctly and being done ethically. And there are many, many ways to do that. And so we, we really applaud that work, and we want to see it continue, and we're, uh, you know, we're happy to be a part of that. And I think in doing so, you can create a more effective, more efficacious Congress, and that Congress can in turn hopefully rebuild some of the trust among the American people that it has lost in recent decades. And when you deliver this report to Congress, do you think it has a thump with them? Yeah, we've gotten some really good response so far, and this comes from offices across the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, Senate and House, you know, committee staff and personal office staff. So we have seen some really good engagement on some of these specific issues. You know, there are some issues that are harder to deal with depending on, you know, who controls Congress at a given time, you know, what the actual dynamics are. But I'd say broadly speaking, you know, there is an appetite to still do things, to still get things done beyond the things that are in the headlines. And so that's kind of the sweet spot that we as POGO try to slide into there is where there is some opportunity to get some real substantial things done, even if they're not the top line, you know, headline grabbing things. Dylan Hitler-Gaudet is Government Affairs Manager at the Project on Government Oversight. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Great to be back. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that Baker's Dozen at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, at least the congressional budget hearings are following regular order. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. TikTok was not the only thing discussed on Capitol Hill last week. Good old-fashioned budget hearings also broke out all over. 
They revealed a lot about hoped-for spending priorities in 2024. We get a roundup now from Bloomberg government congressional reporter Jack Fitzpatrick. Jack, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And you went to several hearings last week of budgets and tell us about some of the particulars that you heard and also maybe the context of this because of the debt ceiling question that seems to be intertwined here. Yeah, there there was a lot of big picture talk as well as a focus on details of agency requests. The, the big picture stuff is, you know, the Biden administration is asking for an increase in funding that Republicans don't like. Now, there are differences that they see for defense versus non-defense priorities. Biden asked for a greater increase for non-defense discretionary agency budgets than he did for the military there are Republicans in the House who, who say they want to cut spending, but that it would not primarily be focused on the military or veterans. Big picture, they want to attach spending caps, limits over maybe something like 10 years to a debt limit deal to say the, the House Republicans say we want to cut discretionary spending to the 2022 levels. It's about 130 or $40 billion cut from 2023 and then limit the growth to about 1% a year from then on. That, in a macro sense, is a big fight that they're going to have to have, and they're at the beginning of that. On some of the details, the State Department request is an interesting dividing line for some Republicans. The House Republicans are more skeptical about foreign aid, sending funds to Ukraine, overall the top line State Department and USAID funding level. Lindsey Graham, who's the top Senate Republican on that topic, said the House is going to be part of this, so we can't give you the 11 percent increase the State Department requested, but we'll do what we can. So you, you may have a bit of a debate actually playing out between House Republicans and Senate Republicans on that in particular. But really, you go through the list and a lot of the non-defense stuff is a bright red dividing line between the conservative Republicans in Congress and the Biden administration. There's no apparent talk or indication that sequestration should come back, could come back? It's not really the sequestration that was put in place after the 2011 debt limit fight. That came into place out of the super committee's failure and the the series of negotiations where they tried to get something much more ambitious to cut spending and then failed. Right now, what you're hearing instead of something like that is the Freedom Caucus has said, and a lot of Republicans seem to be on board with cutting discretionary spending to the fiscal 2022 level, limiting the growth from there rather than a really, really steep cut. It would be a fairly steep cut, but not quite to the 2011 levels. And then looking at what unspent money from COVID bills they could rescind, stricter work requirements, and stopping exemptions at the state level for work requirements for things like SNAP benefits. Really, the demands being made by Republicans are a little less ambitious than what you saw in 2011. It's probably a tougher debate, though, because they have such a narrow majority in the House. So it's it's a, still a dicey situation with the debt limit. But the, the spending cap stuff is a little bit more realistic than, you know, in 2011, you heard people calling for a, a constitutional amendment to balance the budget. They're not quite at that level right now. And on the military budget side, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was giving dire warnings about the fact that if we don't meet the Chinese threat now, then we'll end up doubling the defense budget down the line when some threat turns into action, perhaps. Yeah, they're getting pulled in a lot of different directions by Congress in response to the defense spending increase proposal. It's about a 3.3 percent 
increase that the Biden administration proposed. House Republicans have said they're not going to try to cut defense spending. There seems to be some diversity of opinion among House Republicans about whether that should be an increase, something more or less flatlined. They haven't really developed a clear stance on that. Senate Republicans, including people like Senator Graham and others, have said a strong defense number is a priority for them. So that, in addition to some of the foreign aid State Department stuff, is potentially a fight among Republicans. You know, meanwhile, you have progressives, uh, Barbara Lee in the House, who's interested in becoming a senator from California, raised this. It's, it's been a little quieter lately, but she she said the, the progressive position from members like her is that they should cut $100 billion from the defense budget. There was some pushback even from OMB director Shalanda Young. This is an area where the most progressive sort of anti-defense spending progressives have probably lost the, the bulk of their party's support. And there's interest among the most mainstream sort of leadership aligned Democrats in at least some sort of increase in defense spending. We're speaking with Jack Fitzpatrick, congressional reporter with Bloomberg government. And did the inflation effect come up? Because, you know, Democrats that want to increase spending, they are in a tough political shape talking about one reason for that being inflation, because then they're seen as responsible for the inflation simply because of the the fiscal policies and the monetary policies under the Biden administration. Yeah, that came up a lot. That is going to continue to sort of dominate the conversation around spending. The response from the Biden administration is, yes, we want an increase in discretionary spending. And there are some other things, you know, they want a revival of the expanded child tax credit. They uh, proposed about $2.9 trillion in deficit reducing tax increase measures for people making more than $400,000 a year, uh, uh, billionaires, minimum tax, that kind of thing. Those are not going to get bipartisan support in a divided Congress. That's obviously not going to happen. So the conversation has then sort of been shifted away from the either party's big ambitious goals for tax revenue and major spending cuts and has kind of been narrowed down to what do you do with the discretionary budget, which is not even half of the whole federal budget, but that's sort of the manageable thing that they could, they will have to have a deal on. So a lot of the lofty speech about the trajectory of the debt and deficit, it has come up. But really, the negotiations are, uh, in a practical sure. sense, focused on a smaller part of the federal budget. I don't think they even believe it themselves when they say it. And the other question is, with the hearings happening, what sense is there that these will translate into actual bills that they'll vote on at some point and maybe avoid the usual problems at the end of the fiscal year? They're actually pretty ambitious about setting a schedule there. House Republicans came in and said, we have the majority. One of our top priorities is we are going to vote individually on each of our 12 appropriations bills. That may have even kind of scared the Senate into taking action. The Senate hasn't even been holding markups lately. They didn't hold markups last year. They marked up a couple bills the year before that, but they hadn't been doing floor votes. There was a bipartisan agreement recently among Senate appropriators that they are going to try not only to get going on markups, but they're going to try to have a bipartisan deal among themselves on the top line spending figures and then start holding their markups. Uh, They said the beginning of the markup season, no later than Memorial Day. So get started in May, which would be a lot better than, you know, last year they essentially, the Senate Democrats put out their appropriations bills as like a press release at the end of July and didn't vote on it. So there's there's a lot of action there. And there, there is some hope that 
you know, it'd be tough to get all 12 enacted by the September 30th deadline, but something like getting a couple of them done and then a CR for the rest would would be a somewhat realistic accomplishment that senators are pretty excited about. <laughs> and what's on the agenda for this upcoming week? More hearings, more uh, budgets? Yeah, a ton of hearings on the budget. There are going to be quite a few. There's a matter of weeks ahead of hearings in the Appropriations Committee and authorizing committees to review Almost every agency's budget is up for scrutiny in both chambers. I don't know if this will be in the week ahead or maybe in the a couple of weeks ahead, but as House Republicans are working on a budget resolution that technically is support, supposed to essentially start the, the spending process and would potentially serve as effectively an offer on the debt limit because it would outline their fiscal priorities, um, that is getting bumped a little bit. But House Republicans, meanwhile, are working on a more limited, focused on the debt limit offer, sort of a a list of bullet points that is the House Republican offer on the debt limit. We don't know exactly when that's coming out, but the budget chairman, Jody Arrington, said they're getting close to being able to get the whole conference on board and say, this is our offer. Uh, So there's work a, a little bit longer on a budget resolution and a lot of these hearings, but also in the fairly near future, something on the debt limit from the House Republicans. Yeah. So maybe they could sing out their bullet points on TikTok and kind of bring it all around. I, I think they would be loath to do that, especially given the, the hearings that happened in the last week. Right. Jack Fitzpatrick is congressional reporter with Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and The Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. 